Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then as a podcast, you're with MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Thursday, the 2nd of November. Coming up, dealing with the shock of the country's rising debt. Can South Africa affect a streamlining of its bloated government? Why the school dropout rate is so alarming? A new independent anti-corruption unit housed within the NPA. What are the pitfalls? And has South Africa collectively lost its hunger for success? Perhaps the most startling number to emerge from the mini-budget was our debt position, where the government will have to borrow an average of 553 billion rand per year over the medium term, and that government debt will reach something in the region of 77% of GDP by 2025. I want to put that under the microscope in our lead story with Old Mutual Investment Group Portfolio Manager John Orford, who joins us. John, you talk about the necessity of Treasury presenting a credible plan to manage South Africa's rising debt levels. What do you mean? Yeah, look, if you read the Treasury document, the budget they put out yesterday, to give credit to them, it's a great document and they're doing their level best, I think. But Ultimately, this is a political decision that has to be taken. And we're into an election year and we're in a government that has really failed to deliver on its promise. So I think I give credit to Treasury. They're doing what they can. And I think the budget framework is credible. I think the actual budget from early in the year lacked a bit of credibility around some of their assumptions. And that's what really came home to roost with the shortfall in revenue. I mean, I don't think many people expected them to deliver on that, and they didn't deliver. They have now revised that. They've also delivered you know, significant um, sort of efficiencies and savings and expenditure cuts. So they actually, I mean, going into the budget when people were expecting things to be perhaps even a bit worse than they were, uh, they did deliver a credible holding pattern. But obviously within that, the budget deficit is bigger by about a percentage point than originally budgeted and debt levels are going up and you know the crux of the matter is that we spend a lot of money very inefficiently with no um, sort of bang for our buck and productive expenditure has been crowded out by um, rising debt service costs so I think it's you know they, they put the number in the budget that 20 cents out of the rand is going on servicing our existing debt and the average cost of that debt has gone from about 8.5% interest rate to about 9.5% since they did the budget. So it's a difficult environment. The only medium-term strategy that is really going to help us is one that delivers much better growth. And you know, there's nothing new 
in what needs to be done. It's, you know, government needs to get out of the private sector's way in the energy sector, in the transport and logistics sector, where government monopolies have simply failed to provide the service that they're meant to be providing. But government seems unable to do that, though. Look, they're not doing it willingly, but they are doing it by force. And, and that, you know, means that it's, it's not quick enough. But certainly what we're seeing in the energy sector is that you know, government has admitted pretty much that they can't provide the new power that's needed. And that will mostly come from the private sector. So if we sort of look forward 10 years, the amount of energy provided by the private sector is going to be significant compared to you know, five, ten years ago where ESCOM provided all the electricity. And that's not a willing step by government. It's just that they have absolutely failed and are therefore privatizing by stealth the energy sector. And I think that'll happen in the transport sector. But yes, it's not happening quick enough. And it would be, I guess, nice if, if they just said, look, these are things that the private sector can do. Uh, what's the best way to do it? Right. Let's go ahead with that. But I guess the reality is a, a sort of political landscape where privatisation mm. is a swear word. And um, as you said it. at the beginning of our conversation, we all are also into a, an election cycle right now. I want to talk about impact very quickly, John. You've referenced worse than budgeted revenue collection. You've spoken about expenditure overruns. That is obviously having a negative impact on the fiscal crisis in South Africa. What happens if the trajectory continues because we really are at this point uh, over the cliff. Yeah, look, the mass of it, if you think about debt to GDP, so that's your debt divided by the size of the economy, you've got two ways of stabilizing or bringing that down. One is to cut spending and run budget surpluses, at least budget surpluses before interest spending. And that, to the credit, they are continuing to aim for slightly less than, you know, the budget, the primary surpluses are slightly less than what was previously budgeted, but they're still sticking to that. So that is, is good news. The other side of the equation is to grow your economy faster. I mean, I do think we have to also recognize in South Africa that, you know, there's a vast number of people who are unemployed and are not immediately going to get jobs. So to think that you could just, for example, cut the support that government provides to those people is is not realistic, certainly not in election year, but probably not Mm. in any year. So we really need to think about growing the pie, and that will help stabilize debt. So you can stabilize debt by austerity and cutting spending, and they, you know, ideally need to do that, but I I don't think that's going to happen. In fact, what we saw with one of the sources of the overrun on spending is the wage bill, which has come in over budget. John, let me ask you this in conclusion, if I can, and maybe bring it back to your discipline. How should portfolio managers then be evaluating the debt that you've just referenced when making uh, asset allocation decisions? Look, I think if we look at how bonds reacted yesterday, bond deals came down. In other words, the price of bonds went up and the RAND strengthened a bit, obviously on the same day. U.S. bond deals came down a bit and there was a Fed interest rate decision. But certainly the market was expecting bad news. It wasn't. And actually the budget was probably slightly better than that expectation. So that's at one level, the very sort of immediate uh, response on the day. The other is that a lot is priced into our bond market. So we've got a 10-year yield at close to 12% and probably inflation over the next years is going to be around 5%. 
And so that's, even if it's 6%, that's an after inflation return of 6%, uh, a 6% real return. So I think that yeah, we need to look at the longer term risks and manage that carefully. And we mm. do that by building a diversified portfolio. But it is fair to say that our bond market has already priced in this deterioration in, in the kind of fiscal position. There's not to say that you know, things continue to get worse. Um, investors won't demand a higher no. risk premium, but a lot is in the price already. I am going to leave it there. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but I do thank you very much for the expert assessment. That's John Orford. Now, one of the key issues to emerge from the mini-budget was the size of government. So here's the question. How might the government's plans to review and streamline government departments, entities and programs help matters any? For an answer to that, let's turn to TK Pue, who is public policy specialist from the WITS School of Governance. TK, streamlining of government departments, if I recall, was announced at the State of the Nation address in February this year. That was eight months ago and nothing's happened. Yes, in fact, you can actually go back uh, further to that. If you remember the start of President Ramaphosa's official term, one of the things he he said is that, look, we want to actually uh, cut down on a lot of the current structures, and we we really haven't seen it. And look, I'd even go back all the way to 2003. There was a document termed the machinery of government, where government itself already in 2003 said, listen, we kind of need a more coherent structure especially at cabinet level, including things like SOEs. But it's something which is said, but hardly ever implemented and done. So how do you begin the process then? Look, I'd look at it in two ways. And I think we've we've spoken previously to this, that if you really do want to make something major in restructuring, you should go, I think a cabinet only really needs 18. I'm working on a project at the moment, time willing, where, look, the optimum number for a country like South Africa and the size of government is we actually only need a cabinet of 18 people. Uh, that, that, and that's actually the easy part to do. You're starting to see it a bit in terms of SOEs where there's talk that, look, DP, the Department of Public Enterprise is going to be turned into a holding company. That's a start. But, but I think they could still do more and really put the number to 18. But if you really speak about something impactful where we can really have some, you know, wiggle room fiscally, we really do need to revisit the idea of uh, provinces in South Africa. Uh, If I remember correctly, if you look at the presentation, not so much the speech that the Minister of Finance gave, page 12 or 18, they do speak to the fact that one of the biggest uh, drivers of this growth is going to be uh, provincial governments and the like. And I think we, we really do need to come to you know, an honest assessment to say we don't need provinces as they're currently constituted. If anything, we need to reinvestment into local government. And that, I think, would really give us the space to almost get government to work better. So reducing the number of provinces from nine to the original pre-apartheid four? I'd go a step further. I'd say we don't really need provinces at all. I think what you really need is a local government. You can have a for the, a purely technocratic-driven administrative interface, uh, which would really would require, I'd say, less than 50 people just to double-check on issues such as whether provinces and the like are being honest in their financial assessment, because we do know when you give certain leeway to to local government, especially financially, they tend to take the whole body. So I think we kind of do need a body like that that will really interact with with national government. But I think if we really designed a, a national, my idea has always been that you need a portfolio which squarely looks at local government and within it really looks at things like finances and whether they actually adhere to certain things like that. You don't really need a province mm. for that at all. You just really need a competent 
uh, you know, as competent and also almost future oriented looking national government that is able to say, listen, we already know what the problems are. South Africans don't need to be told. We just really need to right. put the correct instruments to check that on a on a, almost a month to month basis. It, it's a good argument, but uh, it does make oversight a lot more difficult and it's predicated on having the right 50 people. It, it, it does. It does. And, uh, and I think that's where I think the conversation should be. And I think we should never be shy to say, look, I think we should demand better to have a, a government that, that works better. And I always use two examples. One is uh, Singapore and China. They, obviously, the systems are a bit more complex. But if you look at the population size versus South Africa, we really are, we, we don't want to have this honest conversation. Part of it on our side is we think it's a bit complicated and which gives government a lot of leeway to say, well, look, let's try muddle around, but they don't really get anywhere. But I think we do need to push back to say, look, we need this conversation. It's long overdue. And look, if other countries can make it work, why can't we? I always say it's not that we don't have the skill. In South, uh, we've got tons of skills in South Africa. It's the issue of let's put political will and let's put a plan that people can get behind and say, look, let's really get this country really working. Because if we don't and we have this conversation again, you and I, in the next two or three years, it's going to be a bit too late from there. So if we focus on the provinces, where does this leave uh, municipal government? My, the arrangement I'm working on is to say, look, it actually strengthens them. I look if you look at a place like Gauteng, I don't think Gauteng needs all the municipalities it currently has. If anything, Gauteng should only have three municipalities. So now the question will become look, how many of these are, can be construed as metros? And then I think you put a reinvestment back. And by reinvestment, it's not just financial, it turns about getting the right people. If you look at issues of getting the right type of funding into municipalities, a lot of times we don't have the right people that understand business to actually be, be able to say, listen, Let's look at the CBD of Joburg. How do you retain the big companies there so that they can say, listen, I also want to invest into this. How do we get the right foreign investment into those places? Because foreign investors and investors, period, they don't invest in a country. They invest in a locality. So what's been missing is sometimes they don't have that interaction with the locality. And I always make the argument that we don't put the right people that can actually understand and speak the language of these investors. So for me, that's what I mean by reinvestment. Local government should be propped up by having the right individuals within it. And then the money we would have put into province, I think, can then go into things like into infrastructure. You know, they're really the hard stuff that really makes an area and a location investor friendly. And so I think that's how local government comes into my thinking. So just a quick answer in conclusion, when we hear um, words like review and streamline, um, are you suggesting that this is just hollow political rhetoric that we've heard before? It's code for ask me again next year. I'll give you a different sounding, more fancier sounding English word after you've re-elected me. But I won't give you anything in black and blue. All right, TK, we'll book you for an interview this time next year. Then we can have exactly the same conversation. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much indeed. From Wits University, TK Pue. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now, the medium-term consequence of the mini-budget is that for the most important frontline services, what am I talking about? Well, education and health, funding is going to shrink in real terms. These are worrying numbers, growing only by around 35 and 3.1% reports respectively over the medium term. Now, the organization Zero Drop, uh, allied to those numbers, has also raised the issue that government needs to address the high dropout rate when it comes to education. And I want to explore that in a little detail with Mel Mansfield, program lead at the Zero Drop campaign. Just how bad, Mel, is our dropout rate? Uh, Good afternoon, Jeremy, and good afternoon to your listeners. Uh, So at the moment, we have about a 57% survival rate in our school system, which means that 57% of kids who start grade one 
uh, at a particular year would finish within 12 uh, years later, uh, their matric exam. Uh, and about 40% of kids are either getting stuck in the system in cycles of repetition or dropping out of the system entirely uh, year on year. So we have hundreds and thousands of particularly grade 10s, 11s and 12s who get stuck in these cycles of grade repetition and become fatigued with the education system and drop out of school. And we have so much focus, particularly at this time of the year, on the matric examinations. Yet what you've just told me, I guess, is the great hidden shame of education in this country. I think that one of the great um, obsessions of South Africa is grade 12. And it's really strange because we have these two points of focus, which is the first day of school where every radio and you know TV channel is showing kids going to school for the first day. And then grade 12, when we're showing the fraction of kids who've made it there, um, you know, sitting for their grade 12 exams and, and, the, and the grade 12 pass rate. But in between, we really have very little conversation about kind of high-grade repetition stats that we see, foundation phase learning that is quite poor. We have poor outcomes in terms of literacy and numeracy. I mean, one of the international studies shown this year, 81% of our kids are 10 years old cannot read for meaning in any language in our country. And so clearly there are some, you know, real issues that we need to focus on in between that to end the entry and exit point um, within our education system. And a shrink in education funding, you'll tell me, makes things even worse. I think that it's one of the most, you know, difficult things to think about. I think we have a lot of pro-poor policy within our country, really well-designed, uh, you know, kind of thinking and thought strategically around what we need to do in the school system. But to implement that, we need resources, we need people, we need boots on the ground. Um, and so that requires money. And in most of these cases, we don't see the money put behind these kind of interventions. We see them written into wonderful documents and we talk about them in high-level meetings. But when we go to the schools on the ground, we, we're not seeing that translating into practice. And it's, they are really struggling to even just get by day to day. So as far as the zero dropout campaign is concerned, what specific issues are you urging the Department of Basic Education to prioritize? I think that we've seen a lot of focus on teaching and learning provision based on, you know, just having a classroom and having a teacher in a classroom. And I think that's lovely. But to enable teaching and learning, there are also things we need to think about, which looks at real remediation and recent funding to think about early literacy and numeracy interventions. So really getting learners from a young age to build the right foundation to be able to learn later on. And then remediation for those in intermediate and senior phase who have now gone through our foundation phase and are sitting there unable to read and write. You know, what are we doing really directly to intervene at that level? And that speaks to being able to identify and monitor risk at a school level. We're not doing that intentionally enough. We don't have enough people really capturing data at a school level, understanding data at a school level, you know, so that we can interpret evidence and really respond to that evidence, you know, usefully. And then also, we have wonderful ideas around psychosocial support that also enables teaching and learning. And we task schools and districts to perform these tasks of, you know, supporting learners without actually putting in specialized services, you know, funding psychosocial support in a really direct way. So these are key and critical issues that are hampering the learner's ability to actually participate in school um, and learn in a conducive environment. And just finally, what hope then is there for the 57% that you've just mentioned? 
think that we've done well in improving the 57%. I know that I'm, I'm giving harsh critiques, you know, but we have improved access in terms of having learners access school. So we have 90% of our kids in school uh, in day one. I think we really now need to focus on how we keep them there and how we get them to successfully complete. So the 50%, 57% has improved from previous years, but we still have such a long way mm. to go. I think that, um, you know, the, the thinking and the ideas in the right space, but if we don't put money behind all of these strategies that we have written up beautifully, I, I, I fear that we're not going to be able to meet those standards. Mel Mansfield from the Zero Dropout campaign, thank you. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. You might have heard this week about making permanent an anti-corruption unit that will be housed within the National Prosecuting Authority and promises that it will be adequately protected and independent. Well, is that really going to be the case? Some assessment now from Dr. Jean Redpath from the Dulla Omar Institute. And firstly, is this a good idea? And what are your concerns? Yes, it is a good idea. Prosecution-led investigation is essential for complex commercial and organized crime. However, one has to look at the broader problems of the NPA itself. So if such a unit is to be housed within the NPA, then at the same time, other amendments need to happen to the legislation in order to make the NPA more independent and more able to carry out its broader mandate. So what type of amendments then would need to be considered? What we've seen thus far to be hindering the actions of the NPA is a lack of financial independence. The NPA is in effect a program of the Department of Justice and doesn't have its own budget and doesn't control its own budget. One sticking point which has been particularly difficult over the last three years is in the uh, hiring of additional specialist skills. This is governed by Section 38 of the current legislation And it provides that the national director, where such additional specialist skills would incur costs, has to get permission from the Minister of Justice. So this is a bureaucratic impediment at the very least. At worst, it could result in political interference in the sense of preventing the hiring of additional specialist skills. We proposed amendments to the NPA bill that would see the NPA have its own budget, which would include an allocation for the ongoing hiring of specialist skills, which the NPA head could then make decisions on independently of of any political control. Why do you think there is a reluctance to give the NPA more money? I don't think the issue is so much more money. I think the issue is around the control of the existing money. The budget of the NPA has increased over time quite significantly over the last 10, 15 years. So the issue is more about who is hired to do what. It's not so much the amounts of money involved, but who is hired and Mm. what it is exactly that they are going to be doing. And that, I think, is where the sticking point is. The argument, of course, is predicated on whether we have the right people in the first place that we can hire. In other words, those specialist skills that you refer to, do they in fact exist? Yeah. So what I'm referring to when I'm talking about specialist skills is a situation where you don't hire the person permanently, but you bring on senior counsel or a specialist IT person for a particular case in a particular matter can't always be predicted what Mm. exact skills will be required in the future. And it's quite clear that the NPA is not attracting 
sufficient of the of the sort of senior lawyers and senior investigators to be hired permanently. This creates a need for ad hoc hiring of additional specialist skills as and when the need requires. And although they have been able to do some of these Section 38 appointments, some of the people hired um, have have not performed well. So that we also proposed in our submission to the Portfolio Committee that there be a clear policy around a process of hiring such people and what kind of requirements would be would be in place. And so the issue is that it's difficult to attract the right people on a permanent basis. There will be unusual skills required in the future for which you may need to hire people for a short amount of time. And the, the NDPP should have the flexibility to be able to do that as and when required within a clear and transparent policy. Why are prosecution-led investigations more effective? Well, it's been found to be the case in practice. Prosecution-led investigations were, in South Africa, pioneered by the, the, the Scorpions during their time. They were, on the face of it, significantly more successful than in the past. The, the reason is because the, the focus of the investigation then becomes on ensuring that the investigation is carried out in a manner that the evidence will not be excluded in court. In other words, that, that everything is done correctly and in a focused manner so that nothing will be excluded in court and that the right evidence is amassed. Typically, it's best used where the identity of the person who has allegedly committed the crime is not in question. So, you know, that the classical kind of example is the mafia don where it's impossible to build a case but you can build a smaller case on all the things that he's alleged to have done, but you can build a case, for example, a tax case. Mm. And so you focus on that particular case and you amass the evidence and you get a conviction. It's not necessary to convict people on every single crime that they've committed, especially in the South African context where the penalties can be quite severe for some crimes. The problem is actually convicting people. That yeah. is the stumbling block. <laughs> that's, that's the famous Al Capone theory, isn't it? But we don't yes. need to talk about that. Should this, just finally and very quickly, should this anti-corruption unit come to fruition then, where would it, in your opinion, need to focus its uh, attentions on first? Well, so it already exists. Currently, we have the investigating directorate. This is just, the, the legislation is simply going to make that structure permanent because the way it, it reads in the legislation at the moment is that at any moment it could, you know, at a stroke of a pen, um, the, the president could disband it. Mm. So what the legislation is really doing is making a, a permanent structure with permanent staff rather than the seconded staff that we see at the moment. Same question, where, where are the priorities? Yeah, so where are the priorities? So my other concern about the new permanent structure is the mandate has been widened considerably. My own view is that we should focus on the most serious uh, instances of, of corruption that emerged out of the Zondo Commission where there were clear recommendations to prosecute, and that's where the focus should be. By widening the mandate quite significantly, it dilutes the focus and intention on those kinds of serious crimes. I'm going to leave it there. Dr. Jean Redpath, thank you very much. You're listening to Money Web at Midday. 
Now, as I speak, the Springboks Trophy Tour is up and running. It's currently in Pretoria. And writing this week in the Daily Maverick, uh, Songhezo Zibi, leader of Rizem Zanzi, said or suggested that we no longer have, in his words, a national culture of hunger for success, of winning in any area outside sport. That's a fairly blunt assessment. Let's get more details now. Songhezo, a very warm welcome. Um, why do you think we've lost that hunger? Jeremy, good afternoon. Good, good afternoon. I don't know why we've lost it, to be honest, but I, I also think that the tone that is set from the top politically and in other spheres of society is really important because sport is about success, is about winning, but also doing so in the right way. And I think we've lost something over the last 20 years in relation to that, and we need to get it back. And what's the impact, uh, if you're correct, and you say that we have lost it? The impact, Jeremy, is that there is a lot of selfishness. And, and I'm saying this as somebody who's worked in, uh, in, in in the private sector as well. There is selfishness and, and narrow careerism in the corporate sector, in the public sector, which also extends to corruption, especially in the, in the, in the, in the political sphere. I think national purpose and national pride are really important. I'm, I'm really proud of, of MTN. I'm proud of Discovery. I'm proud of any South African company that expands beyond the borders of the country and becomes a global company or has aspirations to be. And somehow I think we've reduced these things to jobs and narrowly profit and and, and so on. And I think we need to discover our national purpose. And part of doing that, I guess, if we want to get hungry again, is making sure at the very top we have the right captain and the right coach, as was illustrated by the Springboks. I guess you'll tell me we don't. Right captain, right coach, but also players with fine leadership qualities. That's a lesson that we, we learned from the Springboks. Sia himself keeps saying he's got an amazing group of players who are willing to step up and pull up the rest of the team because then the role of the captain and the coach, the task, their task becomes a lot easier. We can do that in our national life by making a choice to lead. But it's easier said than done, Songhezo, to emphasize the importance of every individual's contribution to the success of a team or South African society, to extend your analogy, uh, given the, uh, the, the frustration and the, and the, and the anger uh, and the desperation that so many people feel. It's about a culture, Jeremy. So one of the decisions we took as Rise Mzanzi is that instead of calling each other comrade or anything like that, everybody is going to be called leader. That is deliberate. That is to build a sense of national purpose. When you get involved in the work that we do, you're not doing it for the leadership. You are doing it for society. You are taking a deliberate step to lead, to make a difference, and so on. And I think that is something we can transplant right across society. It's in small pockets, but if you have millions of small pockets, you then have the whole of society important that uh, the whole of society starts to get hungry again. Some uh, useful words for us uh, to chew on. Uh, Songhezo Zibi from uh, Rizem Zanzi, thank you very much indeed. As we finish our program today, other stories on our radar. An independent report into governance at the University of Cape Town has revealed how the former Vice-Chancellor Professor Mamocheti Pakeng used race to divide colleagues and as we've just been discussing, the Springboks nationwide trophy tour is underway and is currently in Pretoria. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays and then as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye.
Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.